The Shadow Theory Session 1 A pale doctor walks into the interrogation room holding a medical file under his left arm. He's accompanied by a woman. Smiling at the patient, he begins his session by introducing himself. Hello, Mr. Strahan. I'm Dr. Wise. He turns to look at the younger brunette female as she hands him a small digital recorder. She then leaves the room. Dr. Wise checks the digital recorder to confirm it's working properly and sits on the table. He makes eye contact with Mr. Strahan, trying to make sure his patient is paying attention. I understand how these types of sessions can be for the patient. Also, I would like to assure you my only interest is in helping you, Marcus. I myself have seen a therapist, and though it was not court-appointed, I did find it very, very useful. Sometimes, we all need help. You understand that receiving help does not make you bad. Dr. Wise was sincere, but does not feel that Marcus wants to hear his lecture. Well then, let's begin. The spotty, white-haired doctor sits down across from Marcus and slides the digital recorder to the middle of the table. He lightly gazes upon Marcus and once again smiles. He turns the recorder on. Are you ready, Mr. Strahan? Marcus feels a wave of fear run up the length of his spine to the base of his neck. It's a cold feeling. Not only in the room, but in his mind. This nice doctor is about to say he is either crazy or that there are unexplainable and even extraordinary things all around us. He swallows what gulp he can, considering he's extremely parched, and then replies. The question, Dr. Wise, is... Are you ready? Already trying to analyze the young man and what makes him tick, Wise opens his file and begins scanning it. Okay, Wise looks back to his patient. Let's just start with your name. After 20 seconds or so of stale silence, there's a response. Marcus Strahan. And what do you do for a living, Mr. Strahan? Dr. Wise takes off his glasses and wipes them on his flannel shirt, giving Marcus time to adjust to the series of seemingly elementary questions. Of course, Wise already knows all this information that is in his file. I am, or I was, a bouncer at a club in Atlanta. Would you call that dangerous work? Marcus eases up a bit, trying not to seem too cold as he replies. It all depends on who's in the club and how much they've been drinking. Have you ever had any sort of altercation with any patrons, whether drunken arguments or otherwise? Marcus grows impatient at this point. He knows where the doctor is going with this. Wise is trying to find some rough pasts or previous violent behavior. It takes most of his energy to just let it go. To be honest, Doc, I've had many beefs both on and off the job. Some were pretty ugly. I've also had anger issues in the past. I guess that goes with bad luck. Dr. Wise writes something in his folder before sitting his glasses on the table. He leans back in his chair and crosses his fingers together on his gut, trying to find the proper words. You seem agitated, Marcus. He paused. 
And I understand the last few days have been very stressful for you. Yeah, they have, Doc. I'm scared. I'm scared for my life, and I'm scared of the world. I I just want this place to make sense again. I want to not be so damn afraid. Marcus debates in his head whether to tell him or not, and decides that if anything, he just wants to get it out. He just wants someone to know his troubles. Something very odd is happening in his life. He says almost as if he's in pain. The shadow. In a confused tone, Wise repeats him. The shadow? It's not like I'm seeing crazy shadows or shadow monsters. I'm not hearing voices or anything. It is just... It's just this one shadow. I see it everywhere. Dr. Wise leans forward with interest and returns his glasses to his face, then begins overlooking the file once more. Marcus continues. I keep seeing this one shadow all around me. It sounds scary about its shape or size. I mean, he has no claws or horns. You wouldn't think it would feel so menacing. He just watches me and watches me and he won't go away. It's like he's always there, but he isn't there, you know? He now has the doctor's undivided attention. What do you mean by he's there but not there, Mr. Trahan? I see him, but it's never just on a wall or something. I only see him in reflections or stray lights. Could you elaborate if possible? Marcus sighs, trying to figure out how to say what he's been seeing for the last week without sounding like a complete madman. He he hides in plain sight. I won't see him on my wall, but I see him on the wall through the mirror in the corner. If the sun and moon shine through the window, I won't see him in the window, but in the square light spot on my wall, I see him. Watching me. Marcus shivers, his hair is raised. At this point, Dr. Wise is no longer interested in the violent acts of the previous day. He's spellbound by this shadow man that has obviously driven his patient into some kind of nervous breakdown. Marcus, how long has this been going on? For a week now. It's been a very long week. I cannot imagine, Wise says in support. Any idea what could have triggered this anomaly or when you first noticed? A long, unnerving silence falls over Marcus as he stares at the floor, still debating on giving this kind doctor the full story. He wonders what a mental institution would be like. Would he still see the shadow? Would he for sure be sent there if he tells Dr. Wise? He deducts that Dr. Wise is his only line of defense now. His only hope. And so he begins. A week ago, I rode the bus. It was about five when we hit my stop and got off like usual. Didn't notice it at first. I had my headphones on. was in my zone. Why, I scribbles a few notes down in the file and asked Marcus to continue. So I hit the store and got a Powerade. Nothing special. When I got outside, I noticed it. 
Marcus grows a concerned look, almost as if he cannot believe what he saw. I had no shadow. The doctor quickly gazes up at his patient. He fumbles in his head for a second, hoping his original diagnosis was correct, hoping that Marcus is just having some crisis and is not crazy. But how many sane people claim they have no shadow? Wise speaks in an almost condescending tone. Marcus, everyone and everything has a shadow. One cannot deny this simple fact unless you block every light source, including our sun. Even glass has a shadow. That's what I'm saying, though, Doc. I don't have one. Believe me, I tried, and I tried to figure it out. The lady next to me on that corner had a shadow. It was long from the sun, stretching right out in front of us. I had nothing. I even tried crossing the street to the park. Still nothing. No shadow. Dr. Wise were concerned. How would something like this even be possible? There's no way this patient is lacking his shadow. Is he really crazy? I hope not. But wouldn't it be worse if he were somehow telling the truth? No, there has to be something deeper going on here. Medications, maybe? Drug use? It makes sense, considering what he's done. Wise feels his thoughts running rampant, and for the first time in his 34-year career, he has no idea what to say. By now, the room has been silent for a full two minutes, and he senses Marcus is uneasy. He quickly fires off a question to break the silence. So you've had no shadow in the last week, and you're afraid of this fact. Marcus feels smarter than his court-appointed therapist at this point and retorts, Yeah, who wouldn't be? Combine that with the fact that the same day I began seeing this mysterious shadow all over town watching me. It's enough to make you feel crazy. Do you feel crazy, Marcus? I feel like something's going on. It's beyond my control. I hope it isn't some switch flipping in my brain. Without the tools or research to know how to handle the case at this point, Dr. Wise decides to end the session. He thanks Marcus for his time and tries to let him down easy. Mr. Strahan, I'm going to need a little time before I can draw any conclusions on your... situation. You're going to have to stay in here for a few more days. Marcus's heart sinks. I didn't mean to hurt him, Doc. I don't deserve to be locked up like a criminal. Promise me you'll come back. You're the only one that can help me now. Dr. Wise feels pity for this patient and gives Marcus his word that he'll do his best to figure out what the problem is. He then takes his medical file and his recorder and leaves the room. As he exits, the guard comes in to escort Marcus back into holding. In his holding cell, Marcus cannot stop replaying the events of the day before. Behind bars, most of the time you spend, you spend alone in your head. He sees the window of his apartment, with the headlight shining through. He envisions the pistol in his hand, the one he'd been holding for days. He was terrified that the shadow wanted him. The troubled man had no idea what he could do, even with the gun. 
He then pictures the light reflection move as the car outside turns, sliding an ominous yellow square across his bedroom wall. There it was. The shadow. In that pale yellow light right next to him. It was two or three seconds overall, but playing it in his head feels like years. The sudden figure on the wall right beside him scared him so much he let out a yelp. He thoughtlessly jumped and fired at the wall. Bam! One shot. Bam! Two. Each gunshot rings in his head and feels like a symbol. Bam! With each eruption from the pistol, he hears in his mind the prison cell closing behind him. Marcus begins to cry in his bunk, remembering the screams that followed his blind shots at the wall. The walls were thin. Several rounds made it through to the next apartment. His neighbor, John, a divorced father of two, was struck and killed by the gunfire. As Marcus heard the screams of the children, everything stopped. He knew his life was over. He was stunned, heartbroken, angry, and alone in the world. He felt discarded in that moment. He sat in the corner, listening to the neighbors call 911 and banging at his door. They were yelling for him to open up, but he was frozen. It took forever for the police to arrive and arrest him, but not before the shadow man came back. As the sirens grew louder and stopped outside his building, the flashing blue lights penetrated the window. The air on the wall in the flickering blue box was the shadow. It was flashing as if he were in some kind of strobe light. Just watching him as if to say, I win, and you will never defeat me. Session 2 Dr. Wise walks into the room, this time with a whole stack of folders and files. His hair is a mess, and he looks as though he's not slept in the three days since their first session. This time he doesn't smile, and he offers no introduction. He simply sits down and places the digital recorder on the table. He does not turn it on, but begins speaking. I'll be honest with you, Mr. Strahan. When I left the other day, I had no idea what to do. Marcus hopes for some sort of good news from the doctor. I went home, and after searching through textbooks from medical school and online for several hours, I stumbled upon a case eerily similar to your own. What do you mean, Doc? You mean someone else lost their shadow and wanted them dead? Wise doesn't respond. Doesn't even look at Marcus. He instead pulls a small flashlight from his pocket. He states, I'm very skeptical about all of this, but I took an oath to help my patients and never turn them away. Wise finally makes eye contact with a serious and cold face. I cannot help you if I don't give you a chance. Marcus is relieved and worried at the same time. I appreciate it, Doc. Dr. Wise then calmly demands... Hold out your hand, Mr. Strahan. Marcus hesitates. What is this? He feels trust for Dr. Wise, so he holds out his hand over the table. See? No shadow, he says with confidence. 
Wise clicks the small light on and begins moving it around Marcus's hand. The light moves up, down, left, right, to his amazement. There is no shadow. As a control, the doctor then tests his own hand in the same fashion, but the shadow is clear as day. He peers up at Marcus in amazement, but the amazement is short-lived. An overwhelming sense of fear overcomes the doctor. He stands up and begins to pace. Doc, shouldn't you be recording this? Asks Marcus with concern. Wise stops and leans his head down. His body slouches over and his arms clench the sides of the steel table. It seems as though he's close to tears. Marcus, the case I came across may well have changed my outlook on you. That's good, though, right? I don't know. Marcus has never been distressed about anything. He has a thousand questions, but he asks none. He decides to let the doctor gather himself for a moment. It takes a lot out of you, man, seeing something truly unbelievable. It's not something you can easily brush off. Eventually, Wise sits down and opens an old, discolored folder. According to the case, a young man about 20 years ago claimed his shadow had vanished, and then he swore on the stand that it began to watch him. He was convinced this shadow meant him harm. One day he saw this shadow in the glass of a storefront and drove his car right through it. He killed three people, wounded two more. Marcus is losing hope. There's no way this kind of thing just happens. The poor soul. He wanted the sick game to be over just like me. It's so weird. We both ended up hurting someone else trying to drive the shadow away. Dr. Wise carries on. Upon evaluation, they deemed him insane and he spent the rest of his short life in an asylum. Oh, Doc, I'm not insane. I, I, I never wanted to hurt anybody. I, I was just scared. It's always been too much to handle. Listen to this part, Marcus. In this asylum, he developed a theory, one that is loose and there is no scientific evidence to back it up. He sounded, well, crazy. What was his theory? Marcus begs. Please, Dr. Wise, I have to know. Dr. Wise let out a sigh. He removes his glasses and wipes his face, rubbing his finger and thumb on his stringy white goatee. He does not want to encourage any of this, but he feels like his patient needs to hear it. He commences. I do not personally believe any of this, but the man in the asylum believed in parallel universes. He was certain we have a counterpart in our likeness. It goes around and does everything that we do in some other plane of existence. He said that is why there are shadows, not because of light. He said everything and everyone we see is there on the other side as well. I mean, Doc, that sounds like nonsense. Just crazy babbling to me. I agree. Well, until we get to this part. He believed his shadow or parallel self had somehow died. 
like he said, they were supposed to go to the same places and do the same things together, including dying. So he thought his shadow died. What, his shadow ghost was haunting him? Come on, Dr. Wise, I thought you had something for me. I know it sounds insane, son. I feel that way too. He swore he was supposed to die and his shadow moved on without him. Something about universal balance. His shadow was watching him, waiting for him to die, possibly even trying to hasten the process. So this... This man in the asylum... How did he die? The doctor hesitates. He, uh... He hung himself with a bedsheet. Marcus is disgusted, confused, and angry. Jesus, Doc! He exclaims. Dr. Wise knows that this is stressful to hear, but maybe somehow it can help Marcus figure out what had happened to his shadow. He feels awful. Three days of coffee and research, and this is it. This is all they have to go on. I'm sorry, Marcus, but going by this case, we might be able to swing an insanity plea. And then what? I go on stand and tell that family sorry I murdered John, but hey, I'm insane. Fuck that. I thought you could help me, Doc. Marcus, I'm sorry. I've never in my life dealt with this sort of thing. This is not the help he thought the doctor could provide. A nonsense theory that seems to help Wise cope with the shadow more than himself. Marcus hits a wall of anger and self-pity. Get me out of here, man. I'm done. Guard! He shouts. I want to go to my cell. I'm done with this. As the guard rushes in to calm Marcus down and take him away, he looks right at Dr. Weiss and says, Don't you ever come back. None of this session is recorded. Reasons are unknown. Five years later. Dr. Wise is older now. Too old to do what he'll be doing on this day. He straightens his tie, puts on his jacket. He gazes mournfully in the mirror at his pale face and the wrinkles around his eyes. His white hair is almost gone. He sees the blue veins in his neck and hands like rivers or roads on some pale old dried up map. Today will be tragic. Today is the state-scheduled execution of one Marcus Strahan. Wise retired after that confrontation with Mr. Strahan. He lives alone, always repeating that crazy theory in his head. He's always checking to see if he has a shadow when he goes outside. He was never the same after that last session, and today he hopes to gain some closure. It's a dark room, filled with people in funeral attire, judges, lawyers, and the district attorney are present. He notices two young women, age 14 or so in front. They're both sobbing mournfully, and he knows they're the neighbor's daughters. They're here to watch the lethal injection of the crazy man, the one that killed their father. Wise feels sorrow for this family, and at the same time for Marcus. 
curtains open, and Wise can see Marcus being walked in. His orange jumpsuit is ragged, and his beard and dreadlocks show years of neglect. They strap him down with ease, like he's willing and ready to get this over with. He is, for the shadow was also there in prison with him. For five long years on death row, he lived with it. In every reflection, every light the doors produced on the prison floor, the shadow was even there in the water when his cell block flooded. Marcus is ready to end it all. After hooking up the necessary tubes and needles, they raise him up for the crowd. Wise almost cries immediately at the sight. At this time, Marcus sees the shadow man through the reflection of the window on the wall behind him. He rolls his eyes and speaks. It's over, and I win. Just then, the pumps begin to push the poisons into his arms. He laughs and yells as loud as he can. It's over, and I win. This sends a wave of mixed emotions coursing through the crowd. As his consciousness fades, he notices the shadow, but this time it was no reflection. This time it was right there in front of him. While moving toward him, it begins to fade away. Marcus is captivated at the thought he outlived the shadow man. At 3.12pm, Marcus Strahan dies with a smile on his face. In the crowd, Dr. Wise can take no more. He lets out one whispered phrase. I'm sorry. He stands up, puts on his hat, and makes way to the door. He opens it for the two young women who are still sobbing for their father. He's so relieved to get out of there, get some fresh air. It feels as though an extreme weight has been lifted from his being. He looks at the sky with sad eyes. Good luck, Marcus, he says, and begins to walk to his car. The sun is warm and comforting on his back. He pulls the car key from his coat and puts it in the door. He then stands there for... for what must be an eternity. He's amazed and terrified. On the ground in front of him, right where it should definitely be, he has no shadow. Having your house broken into is bad on a lot of levels. Even when you aren't home at the time, there's always that thought of, what if you had been home? Would they still have come in? And if so, what would you have done? What would they have done? Then there's the inconvenience of cops in the cleanup, and if they take or damage too much, weeks of dealing with the insurance company too. A bunch of bullshit hassle when all you wanted to do was come home to your life away from the world and find it the way you left it. The worst part is the sense of wrongness, of invasion. And it's not just that someone entered a space that was supposed to be safe and just for you. It's then to remind you of the facts that can happen anywhere, at any time. There is no space truly safe. When I was 23, someone broke into my apartment. I was pretty broke at the time, too, so they didn't get much, but the feeling they left behind stuck. I invested in better locks and door stop sticks, 
And when I got my own house, my first big purchase was an alarm system and a set of cameras. Where I live is off the beaten path a little bit. I'm in a neighborhood of sorts, but at the tail end where it looks like the woods behind the development might eat my house and the ones down the street before too long. Someone has to work to find me, in other words, and my little piece of quiet really is full of peace and quiet. And then last week, my phone buzzed. Your backyard camera has seen something. I frowned down at the notification. It wasn't the first time I'd ever seen a similar notification from my phone, but other than me, my sister when she visited, or the occasional delivery person, it was rare. I usually went out to meet friends, the mail was delivered down at the street, and the cameras were all set not to go off at the sight of a passing bug or a squirrel. Even rarer was the backyard camera going off. It was fenced in, and it was a rarity that anyone went back there but me. The one time I remember getting a notification from that camera that wasn't me, it had been a fat possum waddling along the top of the back chain leak fence last summer. But this wasn't that. It was a person. Not that I saw them in the footage when I noticed the alert the next morning. No, they kept to themselves, clearly out of view when lifting the piece of cardboard to the camera. The black marker words printed across the paper swam in and out of focus as the camera adjusted, but I managed to pause it well enough to read them after a couple of tries. We can never meet. So this way. You are not safe. He will come for you. Get gun. Kill him first. Oh, my mouth go dry as I scrubbed the video back and watched it over again. There was no sound, but I could see some flicker of movement as the sign was pulled away again. I had a sense that whoever had held it had run back to the rear gate and left that way in a hurry. Heart pounding, I went to the back door and looked out. There was no sign of anything misplaced or left behind or... No, wait. The back gate on the fence wasn't latched. It had swung back closed, but not hard enough to lash it. Going out into the yard to pull it closed, I felt the familiar feelings of violation and fear begin crawling up my sides. Each hooked nail digging into my ribs as I saw they scuttled up and coiled in my brain. What was this? It was kind of prank neighborhood kids? I felt a flare of anger at the thought, but some relief, too. If it could be explained away as stupid kids, at least it wasn't really anything to worry about. That afternoon, I called the police, and when they sent around a cop an hour later, I had the video already downloaded on a USB stick and had written down the timestamps and everything I saw. The officer was nice enough, but I could tell he wasn't overly concerned, and when I threw out the idea of pranking kids, he happily jumped on the idea with an enthusiastic nod. I thanked him for his time and then went around to all the cameras, making sure they were all adjusted to be at the best angles for any future visitors. Then I went inside, locked all the doors, and waited. I started to doze off just after two in the morning, when I heard my phone chime and jolted awake. Picking it up, I saw the notification. Your backyard camera 
has seen something. Blood pounding in my ears, I tapped on the notification as I got off the sofa and headed to the back side of the house. The screen lit up with a live feed of the backyard's camera, and I stopped in the middle of the hallway as I realized what I was seeing. Following her was a large man wearing a dark blue or black set of coveralls. He covered the ground quickly with each long stride, and he managed to grab her hair as she started over the fence. I let out a gasp as I watched him ball up his other hand and strike her once, twice, three times in the side of the head before letting her fall bonelessly off to the other side of the fence. He clambered over after her, and they both sank into the green-gray murk at the edge of the camera's night vision. I called 911 immediately, and to their credits, they were out there quickly, looking for any sign of my intruders. They could tell I was legitimately freaked out, and they spent nearly an hour combing the area for any sign of where the man and woman could have gone. Meanwhile, I'd rewound the video to before the notification and watched it again to see what I'd missed starting from the middle. Like the first video days earlier, for some time it's just the boring backyard at night. And then, without warning, a piece of cardboard slips into view from below. The writing is worse this time, but I can still read it when I pause the video just right. Gun didn't work. Find another way or run. Do not show them this video or we are lost. The sign is held up for about 10 seconds before a woman comes running into view being followed by the large man chasing her. As a woman, I can tell that now. She looks familiar even, though I can't say I've ever... Ma'am? I jump slightly at the deputy's presence. Shit, startled me. I'm sorry, what is it you needed? He smiled. Sorry, ma'am. Just, well you mentioned having a video again? Do you still have that? I felt myself hesitate. Why? Why did I want to listen to some strange invader over this guy who seemed nice and willing to help? Yet I already heard myself lying to the deputy, telling him that it didn't back up the video this time. He frowned. Well, that's a shame. I... It's not that I think it didn't happen. I do, but... Having proof like that could help us figure out what happened out here and why. I nodded and gave a start as a thought occurred to me. Did you find a sign? A sign? What kind of sign? I blushed a little, nervous. I was going to give away too much. You know, like the first time, they held up a sign to the camera. So I wondered if they had something like that. You know, this time. The deputy stared at me a moment before shaking his head. No, no sign. Glancing back over the yard, he turned to give me an awkward smile. Sorry I'm not more help, but we'll keep looking into this and we'll get back in touch. If anything else strange happens, just give us a call, okay? Three nights later, my camera alerted me again. There was no sign this time, just a small shape running across the backyard near the fence, barely in view. They, she, was looking behind her, but suddenly the large figure appeared out of the murk in front of her and grabbed her by the neck. Her feet were kicking a foot off the ground, and after a few seconds of struggle, she went limp. The large man dropped 
her to the grass casually before turning to me, oh, I mean camera, and walking close enough for me to see their face. It was the hardened and cruel face of an older man, sloped and jutting forehead over two small eyes and a hooked nose that pointed down to a twisted, smirking mouth. A large scar, clearly years old, even in the poor clarity of the camera footage, ran like a lightning bolt down from between his eyes to the bottom edge of his cheek. He stared into the camera, mouthing the words that I could not hear, but that I still felt in my heart. Maybe it was my imagination, but it seemed like I knew what he was saying and that it was meant for me. Be seeing you. I had taken a sleeping pill the night before, and so I didn't see the video until after 9 the next morning. I called 911 yet again, and this time it wasn't the nice deputy from before that came to my door. It was him. Twenty years younger and without a scar, but it was that towering man from the videos staring down at me with what felt like contempt as I gasped for air and pushed the door closed to a crack. He asked to come in and take my statement, but I told him no thank you. I had changed my mind. Buffing out a long, irritated breath, he finally wished me a nice day and left. I could hardly breathe or think after I pushed the door shut and locked it. It had been him, right? Much younger and unscarred, but I remember that face. But he hadn't seemed to recognize me unless he was a really good actor. I thought about calling 911 again, but what could I tell them? I don't know what to believe or think, and I was even starting to doubt myself the more I tried to make sense of it all. Maybe I just needed to give it some time, try not to think about it, and see if the weird things stopped happening or I could figure out some explanation for it all. I spent the rest of the day checking the doors and staring out the windows, and by that night, I was a nervous wreck. I was locked in the bedroom with a butcher knife under my pillow. I told myself it was just a precaution to make myself feel better for a night or two, but I didn't know that I believed it. I felt like I was trapped in a room, filling with gas every minute, making the pressure grow as it became harder to breathe. I didn't think I'd be able to sleep at all, but at some point exhaustion took over. I woke up to him on top of me. His weight was crushing the air from my lungs, but the fear and adrenaline was keeping my brain razor sharp, at least for a few seconds more. In the moonlight coming through the window, I could see it was the man who'd been at my door leering down at me. One hand over my mouth and nose, the plastically glint of sipped eyes were coiled around the fingers on his hand. He meant to take me, and if I didn't stop him now, we'd be lost. He'd penned my right arm with his leg, but not my left. Not yet. My hand shot under the pillow and came out with a flashing arc of steel that slashed across his face as he rolled off me and began to howl. I didn't wait for him to recover. I ran through the house, grabbing my purse and getting to my car, and when I turned off the road, I didn't see signs of a patrol car following. I drove throughout the night, not stopping until I was at a hotel the next state over. A half dozen times I almost stopped in some town along the way, ask for help from the police there, or try to find some authority I could trust. 
But when the world is insane, it's hard to know where to look for sanity. I didn't understand what was happening, and my mind wouldn't settle enough to try and figure it out until I was somewhere safe and got some rest. So I kept driving until I was falling asleep at the wheel, and then I found a room and a bed where I slept until the middle of the next night. It was my phone's buzz that woke me up. I bought a charger at a gas station before reaching the hotel, and in all the time since leaving my house, I hadn't had a call or a message from anyone. Even now, it was an automated notification causing my phone to blink. Your backyard camera has seen something. I wanted to throw the phone across the room, but I forced down the urge. I needed to see, needed to get any information that might help me decide what to do next. So I tapped the notification and watched as the screen filled with the green fairy fire of the camera's night vision. And I saw... me. The woman looked... 15 or 20 years older with gaunt cheeks and haunted half-crazy eyes that rolled wildly as she tried to look at the camera and everywhere around her all at once. But yeah. It was me. Old and terrified and mouthing two words over and over again. No escape. No escape. No escape. I ran again that night. I lived off credit cards as I traveled across the country and then found a small town with small jobs that paid cash. I changed my name, and I never contacted anyone from my old life. It was like a religious conversion. Seeing that future version of myself had changed all my priorities and plans. Now I only wanted to prove that version of myself wrong, to escape and survive. But then he found me. He always finds me and hurts me. He hunts me and hurts me and hides me away in a place nobody can find. When it first started, he would tell me how no one could ever help me because he had made a special little pocket to keep me in, that he learned how to do it when he was little, and now he was strong enough to do it all the time. He's older now than when we first met him. He was when he found me, even though it had only been a few months since we cut his face open and had been scarred over for years when I saw him next. He told me that he had to wait until he knew enough to not only keep the pocket open, but to break time. He says that time is a lie, and like many things, I've seen enough to believe him now. The first time I saw him disappear in front of me, I, I thought it was a trick. It took me a while to realize it was a crack I could crawl through if I was fast and brave enough. I've escaped him over 30 times, and I'm still not as old and crazy as that version of us in the last video. I used to think that he was letting me escape just to toy with me, but I don't think that's it anymore. Whatever he is or can do, he's not a god. He's flawed, and well, I think he just has trouble keeping track of all of us. I followed in his wake as he traveled to other times, but also to other pockets he's made. I found versions of us, other timelines, where different choices created different paths, at least until he came to visit. He's collecting us, I think. I don't know how he finds us, but he can. Every damn time. I've asked him why he wants us so much. 
It turns out only you can endure so much pain and cruelty and fear before you become brave. He just laughed at first, but then he stopped and seemed to consider the question seriously. He told me he'd never understood why he had his gift or what he was meant to do with it. And for all that he'd seen, he'd only been left with more questions than answers. It made him feel empty and angry, and when he was a younger man, he'd taken that out on people he ran across when he thought he couldn't get caught. And then he met this woman. He was just doing a follow-up to complaints about people in her backyard. He knew right away he wanted to visit her that night, so that's just what he did. And then she slashed him across the face and ran off into the night. This was the first time in years he'd felt afraid at all, and he'd never been scared like that before. It was that terror and uncertainty that triggered it, he thinks. He instinctively reached out to create a pocket to crawl into and hide from anyone that might come when she got help, but instead, he tumbled into the past. It took months for him to learn to do it again, and years more before he could really control it. By then... Well, by then, he knew he was the next thing to God. And the first thing he set about doing was finding us. Not just because we triggered his untapped potential, though that played a part too. He said the main reason was because we weren't done helping him. That if he could collect enough of us, he'd be able to understand and really see, see God's face before he killed it. He is insane. But that's not the point. The point is that he will never stop coming for you, for any of you. I'm not even from your timeline, I don't think so. So I'm technically not the future version of you. But the story for us is the same. We warn our past selves. It doesn't work. And when he adds another to collection, some of us escape and... I wonder if that's what he's doing. If he's letting us escape, put out our warnings to our past or other selves, and then harvesting all the new different timelines that grow up from these intervening messages, different choices and paths leading to new crops of victims. I don't know. And I don't know if it matters. All I know is that you need to run and be smarter than I was. Keep a small gun and a knife on you at all times. All times. The gun is for him. He's tough, but he's still human. And as he gets older, he's getting slower too. If that doesn't work, well, the knife is for yourself. You think that's insane? I know, because I think the same thing. But this is why I told you all this. So you know I'm with you, a version of you, and that you can trust me. You can believe me when I tell you that I've seen the fields where he grows and buries us. Hundreds of holes burrowed into the flesh of the universe. The things in there. Well, a blade across the throat would be a mercy if it comes to that. So I'll end it here. Good luck. Stay safe, and I hope I never see you again.
document was found tied to a rock outside of a vandalized motel room in rural Oregon. The door had been kicked in, but there were few signs of a struggle and none of theft. The true identity of the woman who has rented the room two nights earlier or her current whereabouts remain unknown.